If you open just about any collection of Mother Goose nursery rhymes, you will eventually come across the following verse. Pussycat, pussycat, where have you been? I've been to London to visit the Queen. Pussycat, pussycat, what did you there? I frightened a little mouse under her chair. 25 years ago, I was uh, traveling around a bit, giving a lecture to college pastors, and I opened my lecture with that nursery rhyme. Uh, about 35 years ago, I had started a, a magazine for college uh, ministry staff called the Ivy Jungle, uh, the Ivy Jungle Report. And that had grown into the Ivy Jungle Network, which was a conference, and it was a survey, and there was some consulting options and a variety of things that were happening with the Ivy Jungle Network. Um, anyway, I ended up doing some consulting for various denominations, and it was uh, growing out of this uh, survey of the state of campus ministry that we would do every year. And I felt like the results of the survey were not um, comprehensive enough to help people understand how college ministry was faring. So uh, I'd run across this Mother Goose nursery rhyme reading to one of my boys, um, and I was quite taken by it, and I actually did some research on it. And I discovered, uh, to my surprise, that while we don't know who wrote it, it is generally believed that it is describing an actual historic event, uh, apparently during the, one, the reign of Queen Elizabeth uh, I, a cat had chased a mouse under her chair. I had assumed that it was an allegory. And uh, to be clear, I did not think that it had been written about college ministry in particular, but it, I did think it described it quite well. And I said to the college ministers there, so these are campus pastors, college and university uh, uh, chaplains and dean of uh, spiritual life, and then uh, some other denominational execs. I described all those kinds of uh, church-based campus pastors and others, parachurch staff. I said, look, um, my concern is that we are, in some senses, in the court of the kings and the queens, uh, the great halls of learning. We have daily access to the, to the giant epicenters of uh, power and influence in uh, the Western University. But I fear that we are engaged often in chasing mice uh, under, under chairs. Now, I would then concede that my statement uh, was uh, a reach, uh, but my premise was that many campus ministers were content to a much smaller agenda than I thought they should be. Many were doing evangelism and discipleship, which I, of course, wanted to affirm, but they were doing it almost as if the university didn't exist, or the university only existed to gather students together so they could pull them outside of, of higher education generally, and talk to them as though they were doing anything else. And I said, uh, look, uh, we need to be thinking about our work in the context of ideas and the way culture is being shaped by the university. And then I would trace the development of higher ed um, from Harvard up to the present. So I want to say, uh, the Mother Goose Nursery Rhyme was a bit of a dig, uh, but it worked then, and uh, hopefully it will work now. And we are picking up on higher ed as we move through the 18th century. Uh, and, and as we're moving through the 18th century, the number of uh, uh, institutions of higher learning are beginning to multiply. And later on, we're going to see the, the, the huge impact that they have. And so I want to just um, 
stay current with this. As you know, if you've been listening uh, to this podcast from the beginning, um, back when we were working our way through the 11th century, I did an episode uh, on the start of higher education. And that was on the beginning of the medieval universities, which were growing out of the, the cathedral schools uh, that had been uh, happening back then. And I said, I want to start and make mention of this because uh, higher education is very important and it's going to lead to this massive and massively important uh, industry down the line. So I then, in that episode, I think it was number 26, I said, uh, today there are close to 4,300 colleges and universities in the United States. Collectively, they employ a couple million people, and ostensibly, they are educating 20 million students. Uh, I then noted that major universities are worth tens of billions of dollars and that they pour hundreds of millions of dollars into local economies. I marveled at their endowments, um, noting that the endowments of the top 25 universities were collectively larger than the GDP of most countries. Uh, I also noted that these institutions often had R&D budgets of hundreds of millions of dollars, employ scads of the brightest people on the planet, and that having said all this, uh, I had yet to comment on their sports programs, which are not insignificant. Uh, there I noted that it's not just that college sports is a multi-billion dollar enterprise, or that some people only read about higher education on the sports pages of the paper. I noted that for some, college sports is a religion. I'm tempted to say you know who you are, but um, I'm not sure that you do. So um, I think we're often blind to the way sports can be a religion. Uh, when asked what the largest church is in Chicago, I always say on Sunday mornings in the fall, the largest worship service is held at Soldier Field, uh, where you have over 60,000 people uh, worshiping there. So that's a bit snarky. Um, let, me, <laughs> let me keep going. Uh, in that first lecture, I, almost, I also noted uh, the work by Charles Malik, uh, late uh, Secretary General of the United Nations. In his book, The Christian Critique of the University, he argues that higher education is the most important institution. He lists there seven. Um, and I don't necessarily agree with him, didn't agree with him then, uh, agree even less now, but he said that there are seven institutions and that higher education is most important because those trained in higher education uh, influence the other six. Uh, at the time, I said that I thought that uh, the family and the church were more important than, um, than education. Today, uh, I would be inclined to say the media might be more important than education, but Anyway, different talk. Uh, the big point I made then and the point that I want to develop now is that in its origin, education in general and uh, higher education is a Christian idea. So in uh, episode number 26, I noted that while universities got their formal start in the 11th century, um, they were in development as far back as Augustine in the fourth century with the cathedral schools, I then traced the intermediate steps that they took, uh, such as the monastery scriptoriums, uh, Charlemagne's efforts to educate his family and other things uh, in the late eighth and, eighth and 19th centuries. Um, <clears throat> I noted that the idea of an educational institution was not exclusively a Christian one. 
The Greeks had academies dating back to Plato and Socrates, so uh, centuries before Christ was born. Uh, and, and I also argued that, that those schools developed along the track that um, could start at some point to feel like colleges. But I argued that the medieval university was clearly a Christian enterprise. And uh, I said, that's not surprising. Medieval, this is the era of Christendom. This is before the scientific revolution. This is before the Renaissance, all of those things. So um, there's more. Look, you can go back to episode 26, talk about the, you know, the trivium and talk about the, the fact that you're basically either going to get a major back then in theology, law, or medicine. Uh, all of that is there. Um, what I want to do again is I want to focus today on higher education in the 18th century, noting that it is unabashedly a Christian endeavor. I realize that uh, this is news to some of you. Trust me, it's news to a lot of current higher education faculty as well. That doesn't mean that it's not true. So let me just start backing up to build my case for this. Uh, when I was doing this 30 years ago, I was starting, I was just focusing on the US, so I was starting with Harvard. Uh, I'm gonna back up. Since then, I've, I've had the opportunity to spend some time at both Oxford and Cambridge, and so I wanna start with them. So Oxford was founded in the 10th century. Uh, it emerged out of this whole cathedral school idea, and uh, interestingly, but uh, not insignificantly, so this is a thousand years after uh, Jesus claimed to be the light of the world, uh, which linked truth and light and Jesus together. So a thousand years after that, Oxford's founding motto was Domineus Teo Illumia, which if you haven't had Latin, might sound like a Harry Potter uh, spell, but um, it actually means the Lord is my light. This is... Uh, Clearly, a Christian motto. Additionally, uh, it was spelled out on the crest. It was divided between three um, Bibles. It was sort of written on, on three crowns there, which clearly is an indication uh, of the Trinity. When we go uh, a couple hundred years later, 1209, we have the founding of Cambridge. Uh, I've spent more time at Cambridge. Um, I was at the Tyndale Study Center, which is sort of an evangelical uh, PhD place that you go and study. It's just a big library. You run a desk there. Uh, I've had a chance to be there for um, uh, an extended period of time. So their whole college and university system is very different than ours. Um, but all I need to say is that when I've been there, so I've been there a few times, I've always uh, made sure to do their Sunday afternoon Christian history tour. And if you get to London, really, you ought to take the train to Cambridge and on a Sunday afternoon do this Christian study tour. It's fascinating. First of all, it's a, it's a history tour. So you're, you're getting the history of Cambridge. You're, you're walking past the, the tree where supposedly Isaac Newton was when the apple fell on his head and he you know, sort of um, reasoned his way to gravity. So the tree died. Uh, an apple from that tree, the seeds from that apple was used to plant another apple tree, which has subsequently died. They're, I think they're on the third or fourth apple tree, but it's in the same spot. Uh, you also go to the place where Crick and Watson uh, first announced the double helix. You can go to places where uh, C.S. Lewis uh, was hanging out. If you're back at Oxford, you can go to the bird in the bath or the eagle and the child. 
uh, and, and go to the place where Lewis and Oxford, Lewis and Tolkien were hanging out, reading each other's writings and helping critique it. It's going to lead to the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings. Uh, but, but it's also, you get this, you, you don't just get those kinds of things. You see how much of what was going on over the last, you know, in Oxford's case, uh, over a thousand years, and close to that in Cambridge's case, how the church was driving this, how so many of the leading figures uh, were people of faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, it's, it's just profound to see that. So um, when you then, we, we go from Oxford to Cambridge, when you then go uh, across the pond, we go back to Cambridge now, because now we're going to Cambridge in New England, which is where Harvard has started. It's not a mistake. You got the students from Cambridge who are now, uh, the, you know, Christians who are now part of the founding of, uh, of of New England, and they are forming a new Cambridge, Massachusetts, and their graduates. Um, excuse me. They're, when they get there, as settlers, they have stated out that their goal is going to be uh, these five priorities: number one, to survive; number two to build homes and establish livelihoods. Number three, to build a church. Number four, to get a basic government in place. And then number five, to create a university so that their children could learn to read the Bible and that the children would have educated clergy. So among this group, this initial group founding Cambridge, uh, the, the town where Harvard is, is John Harvard. So John Harvard, who was going to die as a young man in his 30s, he's the one that leaves a bequest to start Harvard College. It's founded in 1636 as the first college. Um, if you read the founding documents, there can be no confusion. It is founded as a thoroughly uh, Christ-centered institution. Uh, one of the founding documents reads this. After God had carried us safe to New England and had builded our houses, provided necessaries for our livelihood, reared convenient places for God's worship, and settled the civil government, one of the next things we longed for and looked after was to advance learning and perpetuate it to posterity. Dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present ministers shall lie in the dust. Uh, in addition to that sort of founding statement about, um, about Harvard, their vision just sort of drips with, uh, with evangelical zeal. Uh, the motto of Harvard was, in Christi glorium, so in Christ, to Christ's glory. And uh, the words on its shield are veritas, uh, which is truth. And veritas is divided uh, on three, the letters for veritas is divided onto three open Bibles, uh, Veritas was, it's the word for truth, which to the founders was not an abstract concept. It was a, um, it was, uh, a person. Um, by the way, the, uh, the word Veritas on the Latin seal uh, is spread out over three letters because this is indicating a trinity just as we had back with Oxford. You also have on, the, on that seal, you have uh, in Latin the words Christo et Ecclesia, which means for Christ and the church. So 
Clearly, the goal here is to have a God-honoring, Christ-centered institution. And John Harvard states in his bequest that he wants to let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider, well, the main end of his life and studies, that is, to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of knowledge and learning, and to see the Lord as the giver of all wisdom. Let everyone seriously set himself by prayer and secret to see Christ as Lord and Master. Um, additionally, a church is established at the center of the Harvard campus. And initially, all you could take at Harvard was uh, the Bible, the little Greek, and if you um, and Latin. And if you really wanted to be wild, you could take a little bit of uh, algebra. Its primary purpose was to train clergy. The second school that is established is William and Mary. This is, uh, comes into being in 1693. It's an Anglican school, and the president, Reverend William Smith, in founding it, said that the goal is to give the students all the Anglicanism that traffic uh, would bear. So he's uh, obviously seeing this as a Christian, but also it's Ang Church of England, perhaps, as opposed to um, Harvard, which is congregational and more Protestant. Uh, Yale's Third, founded in 1701, it's a congregational school. It's founded because uh, there were people who believed Harvard had already uh, slipped from orthodoxy. Uh, Cotton Mather is the first, um, the Mather family is a, is a very prominent um, religious family of clergy, just like uh, the Stoddards. Uh, so Cotton Mather was the first president. Um, Increase, his son, is also going to be a very prominent um, uh, Christian. But Cotton um, states that the primary goal is that every student shall consider the main end of his study to wit to know God and Jesus Christ and answerably lead a godly, sober life. Princeton comes along, 1746. It's a Presbyterian school. Its charter talks about the grace of God, about being Protestant, and about the school being a seminary of piety and good literature. Uh, a foundation for the future and prosperity of the church and state. University of Pennsylvania is founded next, 1751. Uh, I've also seen 1755. Uh, but Benjamin Franklin is the key, and this is the first school not uh, aggressively Christian. Benjamin Franklin, uh, more of a deist. Um, so it does not have quite the same level of intensity in its focus, but one of the founding trustees is George Whitfield. So Whitfield, remember, is one of the architects of the Great Awakening. He's one of the original uh, trustees of the university. And I can go on uh, for a long time. In an advertisement for Columbia University, which was founded in 1754, uh, the president, uh, Samuel Johnson, said that the school's primary purpose was, quote, to teach and engage the children to know God and Jesus Christ and to love and serve him in all sobriety, godliness, and righteousness of life with a perfect heart and willing mind. Brown, founded in 1764, is a Baptist school. Rutgers, founded in 1766, is a Dutch Reform school. Dartmouth, founded in 1769, is a congregational school. 167 of the first 182 colleges and universities in North America were started by Christians with the express purpose of training 
uh, people to read the Bible and training pastors. From these schools will come all the other schools, right? I mean, um, as an aside, when I was talking to college ministry staff, uh, I would note that these uh, were not institutions that needed campus pastors. So I'm talking to campus pastors. I'm talking to you know the equivalent university staff, crew staff, FCA, Chi Alpha, BSU, those folks. I'm talking to church-based college ministers. I'm talking to you know the, again dean of the chapel, college chaplains, vice president of spiritual life. I'm talking to those people, and I said, look, none of your jobs existed back then because. Uh, there was no demonstrable need for anybody to do the kind of work that you were doing. The development of mature Christians was organic to the mission. It was owned by the university. All the professors saw themselves as pastors. Most prominently, uh, the president was almost always a prominent member of the clergy and would teach uh, the senior year class that was pulling together all of Scripture and and all of, of the insight, all the classes to help people live a godly life as a good citizen. Uh, chapel was required, and the education that you got was grounded in a Christian worldview. So the basis for higher education that we've talked about is going to be in play until uh, we get towards the Civil War. In 1860, a Vermont congressman by the name of uh, Terrell, uh, Justin Smith Morrill will uh, advance the Morrill Act. And this is establishing land for all uh, states that want to establish a land-grant college that is going to be a school to train uh, farmers and uh, advance agriculture. And Lincoln is going to sign this bill into law. And one of the unintended consequences is that it's going to mean that the government, as opposed to the church, prior to the Morrill Act in 1860, it's the church that is fundamentally driving and funding higher education. At that point, the state is going to get more involved. And at the same time, you're going to have a number of schools start to come online that are not going to have ostensibly uh, a Christian mission. So you have a number of big philanthropists. So you got Rockefeller, Johns Hopkins, Leland Stanford, uh, Duke and Cornell. They're going to make large gifts uh, to these schools and um, not all of these schools are going to have the same kind of uh, rigorous Christian mission. Some will. Stanford, um, Stanford, the Leland Stanford's wife is going to insist that a church be built at the center of the campus, sort of following along with that idea. But don't miss the bigger point. Uh, in its genesis, higher education in the United States was a Christian endeavor, and even until the late 19th century, the church's role in education was profound. Uh, in fact, in 1840, okay, 67% of state universities had pastors as their presidents. And in 1885, a student at the University of Illinois was expelled from the school for missing required compulsory chapel. I don't know if you've been to the University of Illinois lately, but they are not requiring chapel. Uh, although, given the performance of their football team, they might want to consider requiring chapel. Okay, cheap shot. Uh, by the way, lots of schools, lots of state schools uh, still have this Christian emphasis to them. 
University of California, Berkeley. I mean, it's hard to find a more, like, you know, University of California, Berserkly, right? It's, it's hard to find a more progressive, liberal, whatever term you want to use, uh, school. It was founded uh, by a Congregationalist pastor, Henry Durant. So at this point, when I was giving um, this lecture to college pastors, I would pause and say, don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that everything was perfect back then, not by a long shot. These schools were almost exclusively only for men and white men at that. There were many problems. There are always problems in a broken world. There were many problems back then. Um, but then I would go on and I'd say, but just consider a couple points. First, universities are not only um, today, universities are not only not concerned with training pastors, but with the exception of certain prohibitions against cheating and additional prohibitions against murder and rape and some other things, extreme antisocial behavior that they've got to keep in check if they have dorms, um, most schools have giving, given up advocating any kind of character development. It's not part of their mission. As a matter of fact, if you were to go to a university, go to a state school and university today and argue that there needs to be character development, <laughs> what kind of character, right? I mean, who gets to decide what constitutes the good life and a virtuous life? Um, secondly, I would say today universities are not only not basing their definition of truth on the Bible, they're likely to have a difficult time accepting the idea of truth. Furthermore, the fundamental epistemological assumptions of the university invalidate the very idea of a special revelation, such as the Bible. If you suggest that God spoke to you through a book, then uh, you're likely not going to get a degree. You're almost certainly not going to be invited to stick around uh, and teach. The modernist does not like the idea of special revelation um, because it violates their scientific approach to establishing truth. And the postmodernist may approve of spirituality, but not an exclusive truth claim that violates their celebration of tolerance. Now, many of these things are changing in the last 30 years or in the last five years. But um, I would then go on and just comment that uh, not only is theology no longer the queen of sciences, um, but theology, which is a study of God, uh, is replaced by religion, which is sort of more of a a sociological, anthropological, man-based study of religion. But in higher ed today, you also are seeing religion departments get closed down, right? Uh, increasingly, there's a challenge developing. How will we train pastors anywhere? Because when it used to be that you were all going to be required to take Greek uh, and Hebrew and maybe Latin and to study the Bible, now it becomes enormously difficult just to get the Greek and the philosophy at a lot of schools to be able to go on to grad school where you study uh, the New Testament and theology. So, um, uh, and again, one of the points I like to make, a distinction between theology and religion, in theology, uh, if, if you're doing it right, you cannot get an A in a theology class without having your heart transformed, you can get an A in a religion class without believing any of the stuff that you are um, ascribing to. Well, um, I can go on. Uh, I've, got a, I've got a rant that sort of keeps going. 
but I, I guess what I want to pivot around to again is to just to hammer away at this idea. Higher education um, is is at its heart a Christian enterprise. And if uh, we go to 30,000 feet and look down on what the university with a broader view is today, it's become something very different than that. What started out as an effort to train God-fearing, Christ-honoring, disciplined scholars and servants has become something altogether different. Higher ed is now a multi-billion dollar financial enterprise that is driven almost exclusively by money. And um, I don't mean that this, you know, like sports teams... um, being the tail that wags the dog, though that happens. I just mean it's all, we're, we're not necessarily continuing to try and get people to learn how to think. We're often training people to get a job. And uh, that's a, that truth is defined in some senses by market value. It's just a very different thing. What started as a program that developed young men and women as people, that helped them develop a philosophy of life so that they could think and contribute to the greater good of society is now seldom that. Read the critiques of higher education. It's not just that Johnny can't read as much as it's that Johnny and Susie can't think. And it's not so much that they haven't been able to pull together a coherent philosophy of life. It's that they don't even realize they're supposed to be trying. Uh, They don't see it as a goal. So, um, um, look, (laughs) I feel, I heard the other day that that, um, Tom Brady's NFL career uh, is now legal to drink, right? Because he's been playing in the NFL for 22 years. So he's, his career is old enough to drink. I, I realize I now have uh, rants that are now old enough uh, to drink. So that says something about me. Um, so let me pull up and not be quite so negative and say, we need to recognize the Christian origins of higher education. Everyone Every one of the top 10 universities in the world, uh, and I'm looking at the, the, uh, a list, you can contest the list, but it was a, a few years ago, Harvard, Stanford, MIT, Cambridge, Oxford, Columbia, University of California, Berkeley, University of Chicago, Princeton, and Yale. Every one of those schools was started by Christians. We don't have one leading institution in the world that was started by Muhammad, that was started by Karl Marx, that was started by Confucius, that was started by Buddha. Christian, or excuse me, higher education was fundamentally a Christian uh, origin process. I have made higher education one of the top 100 items we need to think about because almost no one knows that higher education is a product of Christ followers. Uh, There really can't be any debate about this. Um, Every school you see, public or private, religious or secular, is a visible reminder of the religion of Christ. So as every college and university, this is not to say that every school is Christian. It is not. Often the exact opposite is true. But the fact is that the phenomenon of education for the masses has its roots in Christianity. Uh, Nor is this to say that there wasn't education before Christianity. There was. But it was only for the elite. Education... Uh, of everyone is something that finds its grounding in the followers of Christ. So, education is changing. Higher education is changing. I, it, so we we got the cathedral schools and the medieval university, and we're now sort of launching into more of a modern university. 1860, we get the land grant institutions. 
We obviously see lots of changes taking place in higher education as we get into the 60s and the 70s, and then more recently it's changing again. Um, so there's a lot of, lot of pieces in play. We're going to come back to higher education later on, but I just want you to know it is one of the things that has shaped our world profoundly. It has a Christian origin, and um, when we come back next, the plan for the next episode, I guess that'll be 57, will be to look at something else that has profoundly shaped our world, and that is Adam Smith and capitalism. See you then.